0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How did you get involved in machine learning and artificial intelligence?
1: Um, So um, I've been passionate about science and mathematics from a very young age. And when I got to college, I started studying uh, electrical engineering and computer science.
2: Okay. I
1: got involved with. Uh, and where was that? That was at MIT. Okay. Yeah. So, out of I've... that?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, I participated in uh, the Super Europe program there, which is an undergraduate research program. And during, as part of that program, I got to work on um, designing, building, and programming a wireless um, health monitor okay. that essentially keeps track of cardiovascular uh, signals. Um, it connects to the ear and uh, connect, collects that data and sends it to a smartphone.
0: Okay. And it's what was that program called?
1: Uh, super Europe.
0: Super Europe? Yes. Okay.
1: So Super Undergraduate Research Opportunity Program. Ah, That's okay. That's what it stands for. <laughs> yes. So it was a pretty exciting project, and I found out that I was really interested in both the hardware and the software side. Okay. Uh, as a result, I continued my study. Uh, mostly on the hardware side, I took a bunch of circuit design courses and continued doing more research. Eventually, I uh, continued with my master's um, still at MIT doing uh, uh, power electronics. Okay. So my master's thesis was on designing an efficient power converter for um, low-power circuits uh, that I use in mobile devices, such as tablets okay. and smartfo- smartphones. So uh, when I finished my master's, I liked research, so I decided that I would apply for a PhD. I got into Stanford, and when I came in initially, I thought that I was going to continue and work in power electronics. Okay. But Stanford has a PhD rotation program. So during your first year, you can spend all three quarters working in three different labs. Oh, really? Um, Yes. So with three different professors. And it kind of gives students the opportunity to explore a little bit Mm -hmm. um, all of the different professors, all of the different projects that are available. So um, I took advantage of the program. I worked with Professor Juan Rivas from the Power Electronics Lab. Then I worked with Professor Sebastian Tron, who used to do robotics and Mm -hmm. um, at the time actually was more focused on computer vision things. And that's when I learned a little bit about computer vision, thought I was interesting, started taking classes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And during my third rotation, I worked with Professor Sylvia Savarese, who is currently my advisor. Okay. Um, but yeah, in his lab, that's when I learned about deep learning. I started um, exploring it a bit more, thought it was interesting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the most fascinating aspect of it was that uh, just the possibility of using the techniques and the tools that are available to solve various problems ranging from, um, energy, finance, construction, um, medical. Uh, so yeah, that, I thought that was pretty exciting.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your the current focus of your research. What are you working on? In fact, you've got a paper that you're presenting here at NIPS, right?
1: Yes. So I focus on uh, 3D scene understanding. Okay. So um, I, uh, my goal is to take visual information um, about the 3D world and try to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And the reason why such information is important is that if you have... Um, in intelligence systems that are surrounding human beings and that are able, or in order for them to be able to assist human beings, they need to be able to understand what is going on around us. Mm-hmm. And some of the applications of that are self-driving cars and just um, uh, general assistance within the home. Let's say an elderly person who needs help with daily tasks or even a surgeon in the hospital that mm-hmm. needs assistance maybe for getting tools around and things like that. So, um, I have been working, um, my a recent paper is about semantic segmentation of 3D point clouds. Okay. So uh, with sensors such as Kinect sensors, uh, lighter sensors, you can acquire uh, models of 3D environments. It could be indoor spaces or outdoor spaces. And that information is not uh, meaningful in and of itself. And using deep learning, we can make sense of it. And um, the, the goal of the project was essentially to... Identify all of the different elements that compose uh, the data, the 3D data. In indoor spaces, you might be interested in identifying the walls, the ceilings, the objects, the tables, chairs, and all that. And in outdoor spaces, uh, you might be interested in identifying roads, the cars, um, and buildings, for instance. Mm-hmm. So the method that we develop is... Well, just before you go into
0: the method, just to make sure I understand, Mm -hmm. um, I'm imagining we've got a connect sensor in here and it's giving us kind of this 3D point cloud of everything uh, in this room, Mm -hmm. but it's just points. And so, you know, the points aren't distinguished from, you know, the table, the the, uh, chairs, et cetera, the people. Um, and so you're applying deep learning to, on top of that raw data set to, um, then categorize, or is it a categorization problem for each of the points into, you know, some object and you don't know the objects that are in the field before you, before you do this. Yes.
1: We don't know the objects that are in the field, but we are, we have a certain set of objects that we're interested in. So, um, the, uh, the thing with deep learning, or, or at least supervised learning, is that uh, you need to know the classes that you are interested in ahead of time mm-hmm. So, they're, in order to first perform the annotation because the grantor is needed. Mm-hmm. So during the annotation process, you essentially choose the classes that you are interested in. Okay. Um, and that's what you use for training. So although you don't know all the classes that are available in your data set, there will be a specific set of classes that... Are used during training and do, during testing and usually there's a default class that is called clutter or other okay um, which is used to identify anything else that wasn't labeled in the data set okay yeah
0: and so when you're identifying the the classes that you expect is this a small number of you know i'm expecting to see you know this is a, a home environment you yes. know there's probably you know one of these 10 things or is it like you know, a thousand classes, all of, of ImageNet, or something like that.
1: So, at uh, the level of three D three uh, D data, it's still a very small number of classes. Okay. In part because three D data is much more difficult to annotate,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so uh, the number of classes range somewhere between eight to. 10s um, or 20 classes. Okay. So it's not yet in the hundreds. Okay. Um, it's a lot more difficult to annotate 3D data. And the, the fact that sensors, depending on what modality you annotated in, as well, um, the sensor data could also be very noisy. So it could be mm-hmm. difficult to identify certain classes. Mm-hmm. So, and that's one of the challenges with uh, 3D data compared to images. Images are much easier to acquire. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everyone today has uh, a cell phone, a camera, so there's a lot of images that are being created right. um, at, during, at every second. And the same, it doesn't apply to 3D data. Not everyone has mm-hmm. a Kinect sensor or a mm-hmm. LiDAR that they use, to, they use on a daily basis, essentially. Yeah. So um, 3D data is much less available, and then you need uh, those specialized tools to really annotate them. So.
0: Okay. It's a bit more difficult. And when you, when you say annotate, are you talking about, um, using your model, uh, to annotate or are you talking about the pre pre-tra- training task of having, um, you know, creating the training set by annotating, um,
1: you know, sample data. Yeah. So I'm, I'm talking about the pre, or this, uh, the task before training. Okay. Uh, the task of generating the, the data set itself and the annotations that right. are going to be used for training. Right. So that is the most um, challenging part um, okay. around 3D computer vision.
0: You know, even for for two D data, yes, right. Uh, my sense is that the folks that are doing annotation at scale have all kind of come up with their own systems for doing this. There's yeah. not like an off the shelf open source annotation toolkit. I think there should be, well, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't really seen anything like that.
1: There are various ones that are out there. Are there really? Yeah, there definitely are. And they're. Uh, I think one of the one, the one that I can think of off the top of my head is called Label Me. Okay. So it's available uh, to the research community, and a lot of people use it. Oh wow! Okay. Um, yeah. So there definitely are for images, and also for three D data. More recently, um, there was uh, an, an annotation tool called ScanNet that was released um, mm-hmm. to annotate three D data. So it makes the task a lot more easier. So okay. Uh, essentially the the task is to paint over a bunch of segments in 3d okay and uh, choose a class for the segments that I painted over so it makes the task a lot more a lot easier um, but even
0: then it sounds like there's you've got all kinds of amb- ambiguity because you're you're painting in 2D over this 3D so, point cloud, is that right? Or are you doing Scandit, like rotations and yeah, uh, all that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, ScanIt actually allows you to paint in 3D. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. So that is, uh, it's more suitable for, for 3D data. Um, the, the challenge there is that um, the, the reconstruction that is used as the basis of the annotation needs to be uh, very high quality, which is not always the case. Because the sensors, the three D sensors are are noisy, Mm -hmm. and um, what happens is that you're able to annotate the bigger objects that are more visible, but the smaller objects are still a bit more challenging. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um. So you can easily paint the table, but painting a bottle of water on the table is going to be a lot harder because points will be missing or that kind of thing.
1: Exactly. Whereas on an image, it's much easier to do that.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um. Wow, interesting. I didn't realize that, uh, you know, I've had this conversation with a bunch of folks that are working on this. And they all say, mm-hmm. no, no, there's nothing really out there. We had to build it ourselves. Well, um,
1: it, there there are some tools depending on the quality. They're mostly research tools. Okay. So they may not be um, very thoroughly developed if you want to use it for production. Maybe it's not what you want to use. Right, right. But there are tools that are used by the research community.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um. But I imagine then that um, you know, even, you know, if you're trying to do 3d annotation, is it, um, I'm imagining that it's harder to like get a mechanical turker to, to do 3d labeling, you know, a, because, you know, there's probably some kind of special plugin that has to be used if you can even do it over the web. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then b just the complexity of like the instructions you give and, yeah. and that kind of thing. It sounds very difficult.
1: It likely is uh, slightly more difficult than images, but it is doable. Um, okay. Again, the uh, the tool that I mentioned, ScanNet, that's essentially what they did. They crowdsourced um, both the data collection process and the annotation process. Okay. Um, so they, they had people, they had Turkers, oh, oh, I'm not sure if it was Turkers, but they had workers mm-hmm. um, actually annotates using their tool. They gave them instructions and the annotations turned out, turned out pretty decent. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. Okay. So we've got the, you know, we've got some tra- training data yeah. uh, assembled. You know, tell us about your process and, and um, how you went from that to point segmentation.
1: Okay. So, essentially, for each point in the 3D data in the point cloud, mm-hmm. we want to assign it a label. Mm-hmm. And um, we wanted to leverage uh, convolutional neural networks uh, mm-hmm. since they've been shown to work really well for images. But the data representation for 3D point clouds is not directly suitable for uh, uh, convolutional neural networks. Mm-hmm. So, we have Why to Why is that? Um, because uh, think about an image, an image as Uh, It's a 2D array, um, Mm -hmm. and it has a level of structure that is suitable for convolutional neural networks. So Mm -hmm. um, CNNs kind of take advantage of that structure in the image to do the convolutions.
0: So you've got an array of pixels and kind of mapping that to a point cloud. At any level of resolution, you could have multiple points in kind of a box. So how how would you translate it?
1: So the point clouds, when they actually are collected, they come in as a 2D array, but it's more, it, it, it's not structured. Okay. So it's a set of XYZ coordinates right. with RGB color. And okay. so it's it's a bit less structured. So it, there, there is no, um, unless you, you go through the process of voxelization, which is what we did. Of what? Uh, of voxelization. voxelization. So essentially turning that representation in, into a grid. Okay. Okay. Um, so, and the way to do that essentially is to look at, uh, the 3D space and, uh, divide the 3D space into a grid essentially mm-hmm. and, um, assign, a, t- turn your XYZ RGB representation mm-hmm. into a different representation, which, um, has four channels. The first channel is occupancy, which is zero or one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's a one, then it means that that space is occupied. Mm-hmm. And um, zero is not occupied. Mm-hmm. And um, the the uh, last three channels are not the, the RGB the color. RGB. Yes, right. which usually is the average of all the points that are within the unit grid cell, which okay. I, I call a voxel. Okay. Yeah. So you have to make that transition from point cloud to voxel, mm-hmm. and the voxel usually has a predefined size. In our paper, we mm-hmm. start out with five centimeters. Okay. And um, the there is another difficulty with three uh, D data, which is the added dimensionality. So in two D, you just have two dimensions plus mm-hmm. the channels. In three D, you have um, the the added depth channel, a depth dimension. So um, that kind of scales the problem um, and makes it a bit more difficult to solve mm-hmm. in terms of memory. So 3D data would take more space um, mm-hmm. when you're using CNNs. And for this reason, when we're using traditional convolutional neural networks, we actually have to downsample our input volume uh, further. So okay. we start out with a 5 centimeter voxel and we downsample it through the CNN. So the CNN would downsample the, the volume to a 20 centimeter voxel. Mm-hmm. So at the end, what the CNN outputs is a label over a twenty centimeter uh, a grid unit, Okay. which is uh, relatively coarse. Pretty coarse, coarse right? yes, exactly. Right. So um, what uh, our paper explored is how can we obtain still leverage CNN, still leverage the CNN? How can we obtain a more fine grain labeling of our point car? How can we label the individual points which mm-hmm. come from the original sensor? And to do that, we design a trilinear interpolation layer. That, a what? A trilinear interpolation layer. Trilinear.
0: Okay, interpolation yes. layer.
1: So So um, we use it uh, to train during training, to train the CNN end-to-end. And basically what it does is the CNN outputs a set of scores for each voxel in space. Mm-hmm. For each point in space, we look at the eight closest uh, voxel centers. Mm-hmm. And we compute the score of the point by weighing the combination of the weights that are coming from the eight nearest voxels. Mm -hmm. So you can think of the closest voxel uh, will be contributing more to the final score of the point than the voxels that are a bit further away Mm -hmm. from the point. And so we use that during training and the alternative to using...
0: And now is this the eight closest occupied voxels or just the eight closest voxels? The
1: eight closest occupied voxels. Okay. Yes. Okay. Mm Okay. And so during training, um, we, the alternative to doing that is simply doing a nearest neighbor. Right. Um, so taking the closest voxel and assigning that label to the point. Mm-hmm. And during training, we find out that actually using trilinear interpolation layer performs a lot better than using a uh, nearest neighbor. Okay. So that was the first module that we uh, added to our CNN. And in the end, we also used a conditional random field to refine the predictions that are given to us by the CNN and the trilinear interpolation layer. And uh, so the conditional random field essentially defines an energy function that um, enforces consistency between labeling. Um, intuitively, you can think... Uh, well if you take two points within space if those points are close to each other then they should the probability that they have the same label is high mm-hmm. and so the energy function of the CRF enforces that close uh, points will will have are more likely to have similar labels mm-hmm. and so with our energy function um we are able to refine our predictions and we use um Uh, A nice implementation of conditional random fields that was published in the 2015 paper uh, called CRF as RNN. So the the CRF is implemented as a recurring neural network. Okay. And the advantage of that implementation is that you can actually uh, combine both the CNN, uh, the trilinear interpolation layer, and the CRF and train them end-to-end. Okay. So that gives like a nice uh, module that can be used um, for semantic segmentation.
0: Okay. Yes. And, um, interesting. And so, what kind, of, uh, what kind of results have you seen with that?
1: Um, we, we've seen great results. So, we evaluated our framework on uh, the Stanford indoor space data set, mm-hmm. and we outperformed the state of the art um, on that data set, which was PointNet. And uh, currently, we also have, um, we, we also tested it on the semantic 3D net uh, data set. Which um, is the largest outdoor point cloud uh, data set that is available. Okay. And uh, at the time of publication, we we're also listed up there, but I think there is a better method now because that's what happens. Hmm. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. So currently, we are, um, I guess, the second best method uh, performing, uh, the second best performing method on those data sets.
0: Okay. Yeah. And um, for for these data sets, was the improvement like? order of magnitude or was it like huge or was it incremental improvements relative to the prior state-of-the-art? Yeah.
1: So depending on what we saw was that the best improvement that we got was on the largest data set. Okay. Um, so we had about, a, oh, I cannot remember the actual numbers, but it was <laughs> more significant on the larger outdoor point car data set okay. um, There was also a pretty large gap between um, uh, on the on the, on the smaller uh, indoor spaces data set but the data set is also um, relatively small mm-hmm. and so the performance the, the absolute performance is still a little bit low and I think as we get more data the the numbers should get better hmm. yeah
0: um, now this conversation reminds me of another conversation that I've had here at nips mm-hmm. um, well, it doesn't remind me of it. It mm-hmm. uh, is potentially related to another conversation that mm-hmm. I've had here at NIPS. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the idea with the research they were doing is that there are, like here you've had to, you know, a lot of what your research focus was was kind of fitting or transforming this point cloud mm-hmm. to the, the voxels. And potentially losing the relationship between some of the, the individual uh, points in the cloud. And, uh, they, uh, this was an interview with Joanne Bruna, um, mm-hmm. at NYU and, uh, Michael Browstein. And like, they're developing, uh, or re- they're researching algorithms that take more like a graph approach. Okay. And so mm-hmm. the, the individual points would be seen as a graph as opposed to, um, points in a, Uh, Euclidean space.
1: Okay.
0: Um, Have you looked at that kind of approach to doing segmentation?
1: I have not personally, um, but one, I I think it's a promising approach as well. Mm -hmm. Um, We do use some amount of graphical representation in our method, not at the level of the CNN, but more at the final module, which is the conditional random field. Okay. So after we get back to our initial representation, but I, I do think that approach also is likely promising. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Um, I guess that's the great thing about NIPS is that you get exposure to all of these different folks working yes. on kind of related things and can, you know, try to pull together different ideas.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of work that is being done um, in this field. People are looking into um, different ways of processing the data. So mm-hmm. one of the, the the papers that we compared to was PointNet, which essentially proposed to uh, process the points directly rather than doing voxelization. So okay. there are definitely alternatives to um, skipping voxelization. Mm-hmm. Um, the framework that we have, in a way, is... Um, it could or this, the, the the conditional random field could still apply to some of those methods um mm-hmm. but definitely the point representation is flexible and there are several ways uh that people could do it um there for instance also are more efficient ways to do convolution there's uh, sparse convolutions that could be done so that could help with efficiency mm-hmm. um the Ocnet is one of the papers that um, export that uh, that direction essentially.
2: Arcnet. Arcnet. Yes. Okay.
1: So essentially, trying to perform the convolution operations on the spaces that are occupied rather than the entire okay. volume. So okay. they're definitely various approaches <laughs> to solve this problem. So interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: With the conditional random field mm. and the the energy function actually that's not an area that i'm that i'm well versed in maybe you can Mm -hmm. talk a little bit more about that but i'm specifically wondering is the uh, the thing that you did uh, that was interesting uh, was applying conditional random fields and energy functions, or coming up with a specific energy function that worked well in this case.
1: So the the energy function itself was standard, um, except for the fact that it, it was applied on three D points rather okay. than traditionally on images. Okay. Um, so we uh, one of the novel things uh, was that we applied it on the point at the point level. Okay. So the 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 end part of our framework essentially is uh, is is different in, in in that we're not operating in voxel space. So mm-hmm. traditionally, when you you're using uh, the CNN and adding a CRF to it, usually the input does not change from start to end the input space. But mm-hmm. we sort of have uh, this interpolation layer that helps us to go from a discrete space to a continuous space. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do further processing within our continuous space uh, with the CRF as well as the trilinear interpolation layer. Um, in terms of the, the energy potential that we use, we use um, a XYZ coordinates and uh, RGB color as the features. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the energy function itself has two different terms, um, the unary potentials as well as the pairwise potentials. So, for the unary potentials, those come um, directly from the CNN through the trilinear interpolation layer. Mm -hmm. And um, that sort of represents the initial belief of the the system about the the classes of, um, of each point. And then you have the pairwise potentials that are also added to the energy. Function and those are the the potentials that ensure the consistency between the neighborhood of each point. Mm-hmm.
0: So. And is that the piece that you mentioned was kind of more graph-like?
1: Yes, in, exactly. In
0: representation.
1: Yes, exactly. So every we use a fully connected uh, conditional random field. Okay. So it represents relationships between each point and its neighborhood. In in this case, because it's fully connected, it actually has a connection between each point and every other point in the in the point cloud. Okay. So that's the graph representation that we're using.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, so what's next for this research?
1: Um, so this research is actually um, a small subset of a, uh, a bigger set of problems that I am exploring. So I am interested in, um, as I said earlier, I'm interested in trying to see uh, how we can enable intelligent systems to assist human beings in their environments. Okay. So the first subset of that is seen understanding. Okay. Um, you can What's ima- in the environment? Exactly. <laughs> so you can imagine if you give um, a robot an order to go to go to the bedroom and get um, a book or get get the Harry Potter book from my bookshelf. Mm-hmm. What does the robot need to do in order to accomplish that task? Mm-hmm. There's various fields that come into that. Um, there's natural language processing. There's vision. There's mm-hmm. robotics, and um, so the natural language processing to first understand the, com- the command, right. um, the visual part, the perception part to navigate through the room, mm-hmm. get to the room, identify the object, and finally uh, the robotics part to actually do the interaction and pick up the objects. Mm-hmm. So um, I started working on the scene understanding um, within, uh, in terms of a more detailed uh, scene understanding, identifying objects. But there's also a higher level scene uh, scene understanding that um, is involved in those kinds of um, uh, assistance, which is how do you identify the different places within a building? So how do you know Mm. where the bedroom is? Mm -hmm. And so when we take those 3D point clouds, that information also is not available. So Mm. I am interested in looking at uh, getting that higher level understanding of uh, scenes as well. And specifically using neural networks to um, to uh, obtain a navigation-focused uh, uh, floor map of environments. Mm-hmm. So there has been work done in uh, getting uh, floor maps of environments, mainly segmenting rooms um, uh, between each other, so figuring out the separation between rooms. But uh, in order for in order for those to be helpful for navigation. Um, we need more information. We need, uh, the identity of rooms. So we need to know that, um, this is a living room, a bedroom, a bathroom, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. And in addition, uh, potentially we need to know the, the location of entrances to each room. Mm-hmm. So once you have that kind of information, you can now plan navigation to go to a specific room.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that is, those are the two parts of, scene understanding that I'm interested in. So uh, getting a high-level understanding of scenes as well as the more detailed object-level understanding of the scenes. Mm. Um, so
0: for the the higher-level piece, yes. there's been, as you mentioned, there's been a ton of work that's happened, yes. uh, a lot of it in the robotics community in terms of mapping uh, environments and things like that. Mm-hmm. Is part of what you're trying to do um, to be able to identify uh, the the identifier room, for example, based on what's in the room, as opposed to you know being given a specific label or something like that.
1: Yeah the the idea is to identify the room based on what is in the room, so okay. based on the visual information, um, but also at the three D level because there there is work that uh, can identify a room based on an image right. of the room, but if you are in one location of a room, of, of of a building and you want to get to the other location that kind of information is not going to be very helpful. Mm-hmm. You need to have a map of, of the environment and mm-hmm. know what room uh where each room is located. Mm-hmm. Um and so we're doing that more at the 3D level and at a higher perspective rather than using images. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And in practice do you envision that a system like this would be used like dynamically or statically? And what I mean is you know, are we going to have like a mini LIDAR on the robot? And mm-hmm. as it navigates the, the environment, it's yeah. making determinations about what the room is or more like in the future, all buildings will have, you know, they'll come with 3D point clouds or something on whatever the future version of a floppy disk is. Okay. Like,
1: <laughs> I think there would be an initial map of uh, 3D environments mm-hmm. and as, um, as the robot navigates around the environment, then it can update what the map looks like, but at a more local level.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So if you have an initial state of, of a room and mm-hmm. you pass at a certain point and you see that something has changed, then mm-hmm. you can update that in the internal map that you have. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't need to be updated um, uh, in real time. Well, it, the, the entire map does not need to be updated always, mm-hmm. but there needs to be an initial starting point and that can be updated locally as the uh, as more information is gathered over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So the the robot would know the kind of overall 3D structure of the environment, yeah. but might be able to infer that well, you removed the bed and put a desk, so exactly. this is an office now as opposed to a bedroom.
1: Exactly. Um, so I guess. For, for an office to change to a bedroom, there will probably be a lot more than, like, one single change. Uh-huh. But even I, imagining that a room, the room state is uh, still the same, but just a chair was moved to a different location. Mm-hmm. That can affect navigation planning, for mm-hmm. instance, and that's something that is worth updating as well. hmm Oh, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, it, coming from uh, a group that's that's largely focused on vision or is your line of research like in a sense, swimming against the tide? Like I get the sense that I get the sense that mm-hmm. uh, you know vision folks think that everything will be solved through cameras okay. as opposed to you know point clouds and and things like that.
1: Well, I would say, in a way, if you think about Kinect cameras, they in a sense are also they're cameras. They okay. give you two d data and you can transform it into a three d point cloud. I think they're sort of complementary. I think 3D mm-hmm. uh, can come from images. Mm-hmm. So in a way, you could say that you're using uh, images if you're, I guess, working mainly with RGBD data. Um, in terms of LIDAR, I think, I guess there, there is a use for longer range sensors such mm-hmm. as sliders. So they can allow you to detect objects that are further apart. Mm -hmm. And I, you can also, you can try to use reconstruction algorithms, but they're not always as effective as a more long, uh, as longer range sensors Mm -hmm. um, are in terms of data collection. So. I think both will have a role to play uh, in terms of solving uh, these problems, and maybe in different applications, images would be better Mm -hmm. than uh, long-range sensors. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: Great. Uh, well, Lynn, thank you so much. This thank has been you. a really interesting conversation. Any uh, final words or places that you'd like to point folks to? or
1: um, I guess if you want to follow my work, um, go and check out the website. The project that I worked on is called SecCloud uh, 3D Semantic Segmentation. Okay. Um, yeah.
0: Great. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes. All
1: right. Thank you. All right.
0: Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Lynn or any of the topics covered in this episode, you'll find the show notes at twimalaicom slash talk slash one, two, three. As you know, we love to hear your questions and feedback on the show. So don't hesitate to comment there. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.